During the 1920s and 30s, composers and lyricists fused earlier song structures together to produce a verse-refrain form, which in the hands of a more inventive composer, allowed for all sorts of interesting variations. So for example, how does a song's form affect its style or musical interpretation? You're listening to The Buster Mungus Diaries. The people, places, and parallels in modern sound. So what is song form? Simply put, song form arranges the structure of songs really into an easy-to-understand framework. Song structure is so important because it organizes how songs are written while aiding in how they are more recognizable and appreciated. So without a song having shape, songs can become chaotic and, and virtually unlistenable. So why is that important? Simply put, song form allows the story to be told so that the people listening can better understand and enjoy the experience of the song. You don't have to reinvent the wheel in order to be creative, however. That's where song form comes into play. It's sort of the crutch or the aid for songwriting. Think of the most common types of song structures as universally agreed upon roadmaps for songs. Song form reveals to us really where the song is headed or going. Consider that song form helps songwriters keep an overview of songs in their head and how sections of music that make up the song will be organized. Imagine song form as sort of a roadmap, really made up of locations that we know of as verses and choruses in the bridge. What are the parts we're generally concerned with then? Verses, which are smaller but differ slightly from each other each time they're sung. Choruses, which differ from the verses. And bridges, which can be totally different from both chorus and verses. And that's just a basic overview without getting too deep into the songwriting process. When discussing song forms, a system of letters are assigned to the different sections of a song. Repeated sections get assigned the same letter as was assigned on the first occurrence of that same section. The letters then create a map of the overall song. The assignment of letters is not what you'd think, however. We don't just use the first letters of verse, chorus, and break, or VCB, but rather the first letters of the alphabet, such as A equals verse, B equals chorus, and C equals bridge. And if you want to find out more about this, head over to the bustermungus.com and take a look at the show notes for this show, and you'll see a visual breakdown of how it works and links to other areas on the web where you can get more information on how song structures are built. So let's start off with the most basic song structure, the strophic or AAA one-part song form. Strophic, as my first-year prof used to say, what's that? Strophic describes how each verse is sung to the same tune. So a strophic song form is also called AAA form, or one-part song form. The AAA song form is one of the oldest sectional song forms known to man. How far back does it really go? Originally, it was used in the adaptation of poems 
with composers setting the poems to music to perform them for the entertainment of the royal courts of Europe. So it goes back quite far. The melody is repeated in strophic form, and each time the melody repeats, different words are sung to the melody. This makes it an ideal song form for storytelling. To get a better idea of what the strophic song form sounds like, we'll take a listen to an interpreted version by Stevie Ray Vaughan from 1983, Mary Had a Little Lamb. The nursery rhyme was originally published by the Boston publishing firm of March, Capon, and Lyon, and it was done so as a poem uh, by Sarah Josepha Hale and on May 24th, 1830. And it was possibly inspired by an actual incident, but we really don't know for sure. So on deck, Stevie Ray Vaughan with his interpretation of Mary Had a Little Lamb. The next song structure we'll take a look at is the AAB form in the 12 bar blues, as it's also known as. The 12 bar blues form used in the AAB song form 
is strongly associated with the blues. And you may not even know that it is a 12-bar blues. You just know you enjoy it. And many blues songs are in that format. The fundamental structure of the 12-bar blues is three four-bar lines or subsections. Often the first two and a half bars of each four-bar section are vocal melody, while the last one and a half bars contain an instrumental uh, melodic hook that gives a sense of completion for the line or a call and response. Unlike the AAA or AABA song forms, which describe the overall structure of the song, AAB describes the structure of an individual verse. AAB is also used as a compound form. The common variants for the 12-bar blues are ranging from 8-bar form to 16-bar form. A great example of this is from the great Elmore James doing a Robert Johnson song from 1936. Thus My Broom was released by Elmore James in 1959, and in it he uses a heavily modified K hollow body acoustic guitar, which sounded like an amped up version of the modern solid body guitars of today.
Elmore James with his incredible sounding version of Dust My Broom from 1959. The next song form that we take a look at is probably one that you're also really familiar with, but don't know that it exists. It's called the AABA song form, or sometimes known as the American popular song form. This is one of the most commonly used form in both jazz and early to mid 20th century pop music. The AABA format was the song choice for Tin Pan Alley songwriters of American popular music, which was an East Coast USA songwriter scene located in New York City during the first half of the 20th century. Tin Pan Alley songwriters included songwriting greats like Irving Berlin, Harold Arlen, Sammy Kahn, Hoagy Carmichael, Dorothy Fields, Johnny Mercer, and George and Ira Gershwin. And be sure to check bustermongus.com for details about those songwriters and the Tin Pan Alley links. Now, by the uh, middle of the century, uh, probably the 1960s to be more exact, the dominance of the AABA song form really faded. The rise in popularity of rock and roll and the rise of groups like the Beatles helped change the popular music landscape forever. And whether you like the Beatles or not, they really had a lot to do with this. Before the Beatles broke off into other songwriting formats, they heavily used the AABA song form in many of their songs. In order to get a feel for what the AABA song format feels like, let's take a listen to Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland from 1938. And you may well know that this is from the Wizard of Oz movie. And it really hammers home how the verse, verse, chorus, verse format works. And we'll follow that up, of course, with Eight Days a Week by the Beatles to get a more popular take on how they interpreted the style. Fly over the rain 
So why talk about song structure when we're talking about the history of rock and roll? Really, it's quite simple. The formats that we listen to in this episode are what form the basis for the music between 1930 and 1940, and they become the precursors to rock and roll, as you're going to hear throughout the show. By this time in history, uh, we have a horrible thing we have to kind of uh, wrap our minds around, and it really is about race and music. Up until this point, races in America were sharply divided, and that ran along lines of differences between everything from access to health care, good jobs, food, housing, and 
social aspects such as music. You would never uh, have a black artist played on what is called a white radio station and vice versa. So we get into having to talk about euphemisms. And for housekeeping purposes, euphemisms are when you've got an unpleasant or offensive thing that's described or referred to in a much milder term. And what I mean by that is, and the best example that I can bring to the forefront here is the promotional catchphrase, race music. And you'll come across that in literature dealing with the historic aspects of music. And it was really first applied by a guy named Ralph Peer, who lived between 1892 and 1960. And he was a Missouri-born talent scout for the very famous OK Records. Race music to Ralph Peer was anything that was done by non-white-skinned people. Around the same time, the term hillbilly, which is often used as a derogatory term for people of various ethnicities who dwell in rural, mountainous areas in the United States and primarily in the southern Appalachias and the Ozark Mountain area. In this case, the label was coined by a guy named Al Hopkins in 1925, and he was a country pianist uh, who persisted until the 1950s, which is just about the same time as the term hillbilly fell out of favor uh, within the music community. Although a clear distinction can be drawn between race music and hillbilly music, mind you, each of which comprised dozens of specific styles, the two had several important features in common. Both bodies of music originated mainly in the American South and they were also rooted in long-standing folk music traditions, regardless of the culture. As they entered the mass marketplace, both blended these rural uh, musical styles with aspects of national pop culture, including the minstrel shows, vaudeville, and other musical forms. Race music and hillbilly music both grew out of the music industry's efforts to develop alternative markets during a national decline in record sales. So this is purely a way of dividing the market up to better focus on driving sales within each market to conserve resources and money. By the 1930s, music was now disseminated across the country by new forms of media, including electric recording, radio, sound and film, and by the process of urban migration, which affected the lives of millions of rural Americans during the 20s and 30s. Both bodies of music provided the basis for forms of popular music that emerged after World War II, and that included things like rhythm and blues, country, uh, Western music, and rock and roll. And it extended their appeal across regions, and in the end, international boundaries. By the 1930s, jazz's attraction as a symbol of sensuality, freedom, and fun uh, appears within the music that we're listening to. And it, it does appear to have really transcended the boundaries of uh, religion, ethnicity, and class. It's a favorite across the board for both white and black audiences at the time. And this was creating a precedent for music phenomena such as swing, 
rhythm and blues and rock and roll that would follow. And hence the reason we're looking at this music as part of the myth of the first rock and roll song. Hillbilly music later rechristened country and Western music, or simply country music, developed mainly out of the folk songs and ballads and the dance music of immigrants from the British Isles. So the first generation of hillbilly recording artists were also familiar with the sentimental songs of Tin Pan Alley. And this material became an important part of the country music repertoire alongside the older Anglo-American ballads and square dance tunes that they'd been playing for years. Recordings of the late 1940s and early 50s included swing influences such as jump bands, Tin Pan Alley-style love songs performed by crooners, and various styles of urban blues and gospel-influenced vocal harmony groups. The reappearance of small independent record labels provided a real outlet for performers who were ignored by major record companies. These jump bands specialized in hard-swinging, boogie-woogie-based party music spiced with humorous lyrics and really, really wild stage performances. Let's take a listen.
We started that set off with the Tiger Rag by the Washboard Rhythm Kings from 1932. And this was a virtually out-of-control performance, as you can hear. This is just one of the many recordings by what were called spasm bands, jug bands, and skiffle groups that have the same wild, informal feel that early rock and roll had. It didn't take long for the Tiger Rag to catch on, and it soon became a jazz standard and was widely covered by dance bands and march orchestrations. The second cut we heard was from the world-famous Django Reinhardt, who played his version for us. And that was finally followed up by the Harlem Ham Fats, who sang O Red, which was recorded on April 18th in 1936. And it was a record, a hit record, really, made by a small group of jazz and blues musicians assembled by J. Mayo Williams for the specific purpose of making commercially successful dance records. Viewed at the time, and by many jazz fans, as a novelty group, the format became very influential, and the group's recordings included many with sex and drug references, much to the discerning tastes of some of its listeners. Now that we're firmly on the road to discovering what the first rock and roll song was, and we've heard music that kind of incorporates portions of what rock and roll is. Let's take a look at perhaps one of the most classic songs uh, considered the basis for rock and roll is I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, recorded on November 23rd, 1936. Let's take a listen to the legend singing his legendary I Believe I'll Dust My Broom. I believe I 
about just my room. Up in the black and you be loving. Your friend can't get my room. Set you sizzling. Now I'm all through with symphony. Oh, rock it for me. Every night you'll see all the nifties plenty tight swinging down the fifties. Now they're all through with symphony. Oh, oh, oh rock it for me. Now it's true that once upon a time. The opera was the thing But today the rage is rhythm and rhyme So won't you satisfy my soul with the rock and roll You can't be tame while the band is playing It ain't no shame to keep your body swaying Beat it out in the minor key Oh, rock it for me Can't you hear me singing la 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 while the band is swinging? And rock it for me. It's true that once upon a time, the opera was the thing. But today the rage is rhythm and rhyme. So won't you satisfy my soul with the rock and roll? You can't be tame while the band is playing. It ain't no shame to keep your body swaying. They beat it out in Oh, rocket, oh, rocket, say won't you rock it for me? While this song and other recordings by Robert Johnson, while not particularly successful at the time, directly influenced the development of Chicago blues and when reissued in the 1960s, 
also strongly influenced later rock musicians. We follow that up with Rocket For Me, which was recorded by Ella Fitzgerald and the Chick Webb Orchestra in 1937. And its lyrics mention a kind of uh, music called rock and roll. If you take a listen to the lyrics, every night you'll see all the nifties, plenty tight, swinging down the fifties. Now we're all through with the symphony, ho, 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 rock it for me. Now it's true that once upon a time, the opera was a thing, but today the rage is rhythm and rhyme. So won't you satisfy my soul, rock and roll. By today's terms, very mild and not really all that exciting as far as a lyric goes. But back then, using the term rock and roll, which was a euphemism for sex, really, really was a big deal. Let's turn our attention now to a couple of songs by Count Basie and Benny Goodman. So swing era songs that really had an influence on the groundwork for the swell that became rock and roll. Thank you. 
Now that set really ramped up the search for what was the first rock and roll song. You could feel the rhythm is really uh, at a new place in terms of the music that we've been listening to. Uh, One O'Clock Jump by Count Basie and arranged by a guy named Eddie Durham was recorded on July 7th of 1937. And you can tell it's based on a 12-bar blues that builds in its rhythmic intensity and features, like many of Basie's other recordings, the rhythm section. And it all but invented the notion of the swing through their innovations. We top that set off with the classic Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman, also from 1937. And of note here, a young Louis Prima wrote this song, and it featured the repeated drum breaks by Gene Krupa, whose musical nature and high showmanship really presaged rock and roll drumming. It really gives us birth to the the drum solo, if if you will. So another indicator of how close we're getting to what the first rock and roll song is. We'll take a trip west for the next song. Uh, something by Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, recorded in 1938. And this song has a direct, and I mean direct link, to rock and roll. Now, friends, before there's too much been said, let's all dance this old tune called Ida Red. It's getting late, curtains on the windows, snowy white, the parlor's flooding on Sunday night.
hear me singing Hear the words that I'm saying Wash my soul with water From on high While the world of love is around me Evil thoughts do bind me But oh, if you leave me I will started with Ida Red from Bob Wills, and this is a Western swing band featuring electric guitar by a guy named Eldon Shamblin. Look him up. He's a fantastic player and played on a lot of records in the 1930s and early 1940s. And the tune, as I mentioned earlier, is really directly linked to rock and roll because it was recycled again some years later by a guy named Chuck Mary and the song Maybelline. If you can get your hands on a copy of the two songs, Play them back to back and you'll see they're almost identical songs. And we finished up with Rock Me by the Lucky Milner Orchestra with Sister Rosetta Tharp on vocals and guitar from 1938. And this is done uh, more a gospel song done in the form of city blues. And listen to the way she rolls the R in Rock Me. And that led to a phrase being taken as a double entendre. Uh, which was quite popular in entertainment at the time, nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of thing. And it was interpreted as uh, being both religious and sexual at the same time. As we get closer to the end of the decade, we're going to see again another change in the type of music uh, that, that evolves into what could be rock and roll and some of the links. Um, and some of them are going to be familiar and, and some not so familiar with, uh, with your repertoire possibly. But again, check the bustamongus.com website and the show notes for links to a lot of these artists and information about them that we don't have time to cover here on the show. 
you can really start to see where the rhythm is going at the end of the 1930s and how it sort of resembles some early rock and roll in many ways. We started the set off with Roland Pete by Pete Johnson and the great Joe Turner. And this is from 1938. And this was really a driving boogie-woogie song and a masterful collection of blues verses. One of the most important precursors of what would later become rock and roll is this song. And we finished the set with Lionel Hampton and his orchestra. And I know that seems like an odd way to end off the decade while looking for the first rock and roll song, but listen to the rhythm in Flying Home from 1939. The tenor sax solo is by a guy named Illinois Jaquette, and he went on to a really nice career in jazz, and you should look him up. Recreated and refined live by Arnett Cobb, this is the model for rock and roll solos ever since. Uh, There's emotional, uh, it's honking, it's long, not just an instrumental break, but the keystone of the song. And the Benny Goodman sextet had a popular hit with a subdued jazz chamber music sort of version of the same song featuring uh, guitarist Charlie Christensen. So we spanned a decade of music, 1930 to 1940, and we've seen a growth in the way songs are written from their song format and styles, as well as the rhythm that each song uses and how those developed. And hopefully you get a better sense of what the early rock and roll music was based upon and how it evolves. So really what we've done is we've narrowed down our list of possible rock and roll candidates down to about a dozen. And let's see where it takes us in the next episode part three of the four-part series and get a better feel and get really close or maybe even get to the first rock and roll song. Who says the first rock and roll song was in the 1950s? Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Buster Mungus. If you get a chance or you have other questions, you can get a hold of us through bustermungus.com. There you can also find the show notes outlines of different artists, links to videos, interviews, pictures, all sorts of stuff that we can't fit in to a podcast. And hopefully that'll give you some extra knowledge around this subject and how we chose some of the music that we did and we listened to today on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and spending your time with us. We know how valuable it is.